What's the balance of words that build and words that destroy? What are you attending to and are you properly attending to it? I can't really navigate this world by myself and no one really could. We, we really need each other. Human beings are inclined towards the good. I don't have to explain it. I just believe it. I change my mind a lot because we grow up. That moment of using words not well during the day and then using the words at night, I'm sorry, was a game changer. Welcome to The Power Of with Noam Weissman. From Unpacked, I'm Noam Weissman, and you're listening to The Power Of. This week, The Power Of Empathy. The Power Of is brought to you thanks to our generous platinum-level supporters, the Maybrook Foundation and David and Deborah Magerman, as well as our additional gold-level supporters, Cheryl and Gerald Hartman, and bronze-level supporters, the Crane Mailing Foundation. To sponsor future episodes, email us at podcasts at jewishunpacked.com. In 2001, Indra Nooyi became the chairman and CEO of PepsiCo. It was a dream come true. She knew the significance of this moment, an Indian woman at the helm of a Fortune 500 company. Brimming with joy and pride, she could not wait to share the news with her mother. But after she shared this incredible achievement with her mother, hoping for praise, acknowledgement, something, her mother nonchalantly reacted by saying, hey, can you get out and get some milk? Nui was incensed and hurt. And then her mother doubled down with, leave that damn crown in the garage. Nui tells a story to remind people that the possession of power of any kind can lead to what is called hubris syndrome. Hubris syndrome is described as a disorder of the possession of power, particularly power, which has been associated with overwhelming success. Power can lead to hubris, and hubris can be blinding. It can be debilitating. Whether I'm CEO of PepsiCo or CEO of my household, all of us wield power in some way. So what's the antidote? How can I combat hubris within myself? The answer is empathy. For some people listening, you'll hear the word empathy and be like, yes, empathy, that is so me. Yes, this is Judaism on one foot. And for others, you'll hear the word empathy and react by rolling your eyes and feeling like it's some liberal or compassionate, weak talking point of the left. Now, let me take a step back for a second. This episode is about empathy, about simple recognition of the other, but it's also about power and how power can blind us to empathy. And it's about identity, about how when we get too bogged down in our own identity, it blinds us to the other, someone with a different identity. And last but certainly not least, it's about racism, the ultimate way of seeing or not seeing the other who's different from me. In fact, all the way in the beginning, when we were batting around ideas, we originally framed this purely as a racism conversation. And I'll be honest, I was super scared about this topic. We all know that racism exists and is pervasive in society, Yet we may not agree on what constitutes racism or how racism should be fought. Some of us may think there is systemic racism in many Western countries, and some may scoff at this idea, viewing it as a product of woke culture. I am less interested in politics, anyone who knows me knows that, and much more interested in what the Torah and Jewish thought can teach all of us about empathy and racism. What I'm struggling with is, how do we balance identity and empathy? Saying you're different, but also saying I see you as my sister, as my brother, as me. So, as I said, I was scared to speak about this topic. But we knew who our perfect guest for this episode would be. 
Kylie Younell. If you don't know Kylie, well, I can't wait to introduce you to her. Kylie is an amazing up-and-coming Jewish thinker. She both believes in identity and rejects it completely. She's equally intrigued by social media and Jewish philosophy. Kylie, as you will hear, is significantly less interested in identity than she is in ideas. So maybe me sharing that she is a black Jewish woman who grew up in Kansas and is now pursuing her PhD in Jewish philosophy might make her a little uncomfortable. This conversation was clarifying because with almost every question I threw at her, she almost rejected the premise and forced me to think about what we were really talking about. It was challenging and it was tough and it was awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you Kylie Younell. Kylie, it is so awesome to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I want to jump right into a question that I have for you. You have written about how you reject the simplicity of being defined by identity. And I want to start by quoting you. Maybe it's weird to hear your own words, no, but please. Th- th- let me, let me, let me hear you like, please let me hear my words. <laughs> it's been words. two years, almost a year, I don't even know. <laughs> okay. Here's what you said. Hirsch spoke to me, a biracial woman who did not grow up in an Orthodox home as a whole Jewish human and not as a Jew of a particular denomination or fragmented agglomeration of multiple identities. I simply read him in the way he had intended as a young Jewish person trying to find my way. What did you mean by that? Well, that was from an essay that I wrote about Samson Raphael Hirsch's book, The 19 Letters, which is a book from 19th century Germany. I read that book for the first time when I was a sophomore in college, and it was an incredible experience. I I wrote I used to keep a list of five things that I was grateful for, five things, yeah, that I was grateful for and five things that I wanted. And one of the things that I wanted when I read it was for every person coming into college to read that book, every Jewish person coming into college to read that book. It helped me situate myself in the Jewish story and understand what it means to be a Jew. And coming to New York, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Kansas originally. I lived in Israel for a while. Then I lived in North Carolina. And then I came to New York and I've lived Uh in, so I lived in the Midwest. I've lived in the home of the Jews. I've lived in Israel. I've lived in the South. And then I came to New York, which is its own beast of its own nature. Also the home of the Jews. The U.S. chapter um, of the Jewish home. It didn't set in immediately, but looking back on it, my race has been more of of a focal point in my Judaism while I've lived in New York more than it was in any other place that I've lived. And... Reading the 19 letters, and it, I, I didn't think about these questions. I didn't, race was not something that came up for me when I was thinking about this because I was reading a book by a man who expressed a philosophy about what it is to be human, what it means to be a Jew in the world, and how to be a Jew in the world. I'm a Jewish person. And so I study Jewish philosophy because it helps me understand what it means to be a Jewish person. I just see the ideas and they speak to me as a person, because first and foremost, that's what I am. Right. So the way I see what you're saying, Kylie, is that you view the world and trying to understand the world by trying to consider the ideas over identity. Is that right? Is that accurate? Yeah. 
I, that, I mean, largely, I think identity is important, but I don't think that it's I don't think that it's everything. And I certainly don't think that it's something that trumps humanity. It's funny because I'm actually I'm very particular about difference in a certain respect. I think every single person is very different. But that difference is kind of the thing that makes us the same. I actually do focus a lot on identity, but I don't I don't extort it to to be the definition of a person. I don't focus on the identity as the definition of a person. I focus on on the person and all of the aspects of their identity are a big part of it. I've always been like literally since I was a, a kid before any notions of race and difference and hierarchy or whatever the world wants to put on that today came into my mind as a kid I saw that every single person had a different shade. I was very, very attuned to skin color. My shade was tan. My mom's shade was a darker peach. Somebody else was this shade. Like every person had a shade and it never mattered because, okay, fine. <laughs> like everybody has their different thing. And so I've always actually been very attuned to difference. So I focus, I yes, everybody, I do focus a lot on ideas separate from identities, but identity is a very important part. How do you view seeing difference is seeing difference uh is that good is it bad the judaism it's hugely important former chief rabbi jonathan sachs of blessed memory has written extensively about this idea from the bible that uh from the torah that it says that you should love your neighbor like yourself it says that once and then it says and you should love the other the person who's not like you you know, I think it says it like 36 times throughout the Torah or Tanakh, the Bible, uh, 37 places it commands us to love the other. You're because you're saying that the Vahavta Tiger should be love the stranger. Yeah, well, I think love, you can fit so much into other, like other is such an umbrella term that other could be somebody from a different tribe. What does it mean to be other? That's a very vast term. Right. So Rabbi Sachs says it, on, he says the word ger has several meanings. It could be convert, it could be Gentile, it could be foreigner living among people of a different group. But he then says the term can also be interpreted broadly to mean the other. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I'm not saying it's the definitive definition of the word ger, uh, but I'm wondering if it help, could help us think about what seeing whether or not seeing difference is a good thing or whether or not seeing difference is a bad thing. I'll give you an example, okay? Because, mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, I'm a, I'm a white male, or to say it differently, I'm a white presenting Jewish male, uh, depending on, <laughs> on, on who, who, who's, who I'm talking to and um how your skin people... color changes depending on who you're talking to <laughs> <laughs> my my skin color description changes based on who I'm talking gotcha. to. That okay. is, that is, and and so that and that's a real question. I remember filling out surveys growing up, and I did not know. And my wife is the same way. My wife Razie is the same way. We we joke about we didn't know this, but in in high school, I actually never knew what to fill out the bubble, like Caucasian. Yeah. And then, but when You're I spoke worse. to my colleagues when I was at USC, um, my colleagues when they when I when I had told them the story, they're like, "What are you talking about? You're you didn't know to fill out white Caucasian? Are you an, like are you a moron?" <laughs> <laughs> and and so and there's this whole challenging dynamic for some people seeing difference is a good thing for other people for a long time there was a value at least in saying i don't see color i actually don't notice any differences what who cares you're black you're yellow you're white you're whatever who cares you're brown you're this shade you're that shade but 
I'm wondering if it, it and, and now to say such a thing, to not see a difference is considered awful. It's a terrible thing. Of course, there's a difference between right. between people and you should honor that difference. It's all part of this mosaic. How do you view it? Well, I, I think the difference is what the color means, which is changed in some ways. So if you don't notice color now, you're not noticing struggle. Ah. You're not noticing being treated as lesser than in certain places. You're not noticing a person's experience. So by washing over that or by not noticing that or not paying any attention to that, you're not acknowledging a person's pain, which I see as being really, really problematic. Right. Whereas in the past, there was a different, I guess, definition or there, there were different associations with color, with a particular race. And that's always changing. What I think is problematic is focusing so much on color, the way that we're focusing on it now or on race, is focusing a lot on negative experiences which I think is really important. I think it's really important to acknowledge negative experiences, but I think it's just as important, if not more, to move past them, to process them. Again, really important to process and to face, but we have to move past. And all that I'm seeing now is this desire to just like, to sit in it, to just sit in it. And I'm not seeing any movement away from it. And I'm not seeing much effort to move us closer to recognizing shared humanity through kind of like human ennoblement, this idea that humans have something beautiful to contribute to the world and are not evil. Got it. So let me ask you a strange but simple question. Are you opposed to racism? Yes. Yes, you're opposed (laughs) to racism. Would anyone say no to that question anymore? Would anyone say, no, I'm not opposed to racism? Outside of extreme fringe crazy people. No, nobody right. would say, yeah. Everyone would be like, yeah, I'm opposed to racism. Of course. Do you think in how we ought to be thinking about racism, uh, which I think we can define as oppressing a people based on their skin color or ethnicity mm-hmm. or you know, demonizing them or giving them fewer opportunities, whatever it is, but something like that. Would you say that Judaism is opposed to racism? I think it's a complicated question, actually. I'll tell you why I think this is a really important or challenging question because mm-hmm. we we both just agreed that that racism is not a good thing and we both yes. agreed that it would take a, a crazy fringe person to be like yeah no i'm a racist yeah. you and i both think that judaism um is amazing and it's a great thing mm-hmm. but then i asked a what i think is a fairly straightforward question which is is judaism opposed to racism and now we have a longer answer so i'm looking well, forward to hearing the longer answer i think judaism what is Judaism? How do you define Judaism? Like everybody has a different definition of it. The definition of it has evolved. And I think what the Torah stands to show us is that there is an ideal. Okay. What's the ideal? The ideal is acknowledging one God, living in accordance with Jewish law, because that is a a means of ethical living and something that promotes Jewish unity in the world and makes us an orlegoi, makes us a light unto the nations. Not necessarily because we don't eat at McDonald's, but because the, the principles behind these things and the, the things that they symbolize serve to show the greater truth, which is that there is one God. Okay. But there are human beings. And one thing that I think the Torah is very careful to show us is that human beings are constantly failing. Mm. And so I am thinking of Miriam. Miriam says something about Moshe's wife. 
Moshe's yeah. wife, she, she calls her um, Akushi. Akushi. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's multiple interpretations, obviously, because it's Judaism and it's the Torah. So there's going yeah, to be a I lot mean, of Rashi interest. says it means like she's a beautiful woman. You know, it's like right, and but and of of a of a particular color, um, right, and and there are interpretations that say that 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 was and racist is super anachronistic, but right. that that was something that derogatory, was perhaps derog right? exactly a derogatory remark on his wife, and I think that hatred of people or strong dislike of people or having problems with people is something that's entirely natural to the human condition. And when we have certain insecurities, we find something to pinpoint, right? If I, if I um, am insecure about my weight and I see a person who's thin, I'm not going to like that person. Right. Sure. <laughs> I think it's really a part of the human condition. And I think that what that instance with Miriam shows us is that is Judaism racist? Is Judaism, does Judaism condone racism? Absolutely not. Do people have weaknesses? Yes. And right. and so I don't think it's, it's it's fair to say that Judaism does not support racism. But the whole point of Judaism is to help human beings who are inherently frail beings who are going to mess up sometimes get on the right track. And so human beings might do things that are racist and wrong, but that certainly doesn't mean that Judaism supports it. And we have examples from that, if you interpret it that way, in the Torah. Right. From a Jewish perspective, from a Torah perspective, we can point to law after law, idea after idea that God created all human beings in the image of God, right? That demonstrates that there is no hierarchy of race whatsoever that's uh -huh. determined at the outset from God at the very beginning, let's be clear. But the reality, like you're saying, Kylie, is that human beings may do things that are not in concordance or not following what the ideal values are of, of what has been set in front of them, which is how Judaism has set this in front of them. But that doesn't make Judaism at all racist in the slightest. It just means human beings are, are, are mishandling the, the law or mistreating right. um, the, the ideas that they're learning. That's the, point of, that's the point of ideals and that's the point of law. I think we see that throughout. Pesach Sheni is an amazing example of that. You got a second chance. You get it right. If you if you don't do if you don't observe Passover correctly, if you slip up yeah. in an area, you get you get a do over kind of. It. And and it's not because you are not expected to live up to the ideals of Passover. It's not because you are allowed to go and have challah because you're hungry for it. It's because you're a human being and there's an ideal and you're supposed to live up to the ideal and sometimes you won't. The Ten Commandments are some of the most basic laws, but we need Love those basic things. Ten Commandments are great. Big fan. Big <laughs> yeah. fan of Ten Commandments. <laughs> yeah. I have a poster in my room. I love them. No, I, I I think that we have an ideal. That's why Judaism is so great. We're not we're not fallen and we're not born sinners. Do you we're think just, people are good? Do you think people are intrinsically hun good? 100%. 100%. You do think that? Absolutely why? they're good. Why do you think that? Because human beings, are, I, I, human beings are inclined towards the good. I don't have to explain it. I just believe it. You believe it. Okay. <laughs> I just so believe like, it. I know. Uh, I not only do I believe it. I know it. Right. We are inherently good, and we make mistakes. 
Okay. And we so sin. Um, listen, in, in, in our liturgy, we say that, Kylie. We say, Elohai neshamash shedatata bitahorahi, right? We say yeah. that God, that, that this soul that you've implanted in us is Torah. It's pure. It's good. Right. It's good. And we have another opportunity when we do things that are incorrect. We have an opportunity to have a little bit of a circling around, which is the what the word teshuva means, a return, like a whole circle, right. and we get to improve upon ourselves. But you're saying humanity is ultimately good. Listen, one of my mentors who I love deeply uh, likes to say to me, uh, Noam, just remember, people suck. Now, <laughs> I, I love him, but I, I view life differently. I view life that people are inherently good, but we do often make choices that we don't want to make or we don't think is 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 the right choice. I think that that happens often. And just because human beings are good doesn't mean that there aren't societies that cultivate the bad in people. Like it's really important to have societies, to have religions that move people towards the good. That because you have to be. We have a Torah. Like we have a, we have an instruction guide to move us towards where we're supposed to be. And there can be societies and and different. Um, religious sects that are extremists and that move people away from the good, but that doesn't mean that they're not inherently good. They just haven't been properly cultivated. Interesting. Do you think Judaism, the Torah, has anything to say to Americans in the last couple of years with the Black Lives Matter movement? Of course. The reason I thought of that as you were talking is you, you use, you define the word Torah perfectly, in my opinion. An instruction guide. So yeah. does the Torah provide any instruction for how we ought to have been behaving over the last couple of years with Black Lives Matter? Yes, but I think that it also is incumbent upon each individual to take it upon themselves, which is very hard to do, but to, to think about for themselves what it is that they want to be putting into the world and how it is that they want to be acting in the world. And the Torah has something to teach, but it has to be interpreted and met by individuals. So like, what does that, tell me, so let me push it, Kylie, what does it look like? Just, so what does it mean for an individual to be influenced by the Torah to behave in a world in which Black Lives Matter is front and center? What do we do? Black Lives Matter is a really tricky example because it's a political movement. <laughs> I know it is. It is a political movement. <laughs> but 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 it has arisen in a particular time where race is something that people are thinking about a lot more. Right? They're it's, they're looking at people through the lens of race more than maybe they were in the past, and and there's a reason it's cropped up. So I I, I take Black Lives Matter and I use it as a representation for the current moment, I guess, and and where things are at in general. Let me ask it differently, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does the Torah, does Judaism have anything to say with how we should have reacted to George Floyd's murder? No. It doesn't no, have anything to say. Why not? Because... So who ought to, I, be, te well, who ought to be teaching me how I should be responding to George Floyd? Should it be Joe Biden, yourself? Donald Trump, myself? No, but who's, no, who's we don't guiding me? Pundits. I, that's the question. And this is where it's hard for me to step out of my own head. I'm thinking a lot. And not only yeah. am I thinking a lot, I embody the two different worlds. And so I've been given- What do you given, mean by that? What does it mean to embody the two different worlds? I'm black and I'm Jewish. I literally have a foot in each world. I have part of my genetic code <laughs> comes from each world. I have 
generations of each within me. And so it's really hard for me to step out. And I almost don't want to be instructive and say what somebody who didn't grow up like me um, should do or can't or what is even in their capacity to do, because I honestly don't know. And I only I, I only know my mind. I only know how my mind works. And and what but what I think is very important and I recognize that this is very difficult to do is it's important to think about what it is that you feel as you react to something and or as you see something. And one of the biggest problems that I see today is that people don't trust themselves enough or themselves enough to have an opinion of their own, but need other people to give them an opinion. That's widespread. That is so widespread. And it's hard. I'm struggling with it so much right now because I'm a product of the culture. I am inclined towards wanting validation by some legitimate source to say what it is that's true or what's not. I don't think we're cultivating an environment where people can trust themselves anymore. That's a scary thought, Kylie. Is there a specific thought that you have that you don't feel comfortable sharing that you want to share? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's time to come clean. (laughs) No, I don't. I like there's nothing that comes to mind. (laughs) Let's talk about I want to talk to you about uh, empathy. How do you feel about talking about empathy? Let's do it. I'm game for it. I want to tell you how I see empathy and I want to hear your reflections on that. I, first of all, I come from a product of, it's important to always know this when speaking to me, I come from a product of two therapists. So meaning if your, your identity, let's say is black and Jewish and and it's in your genetic code, my identity is my mother's a clinical social worker and my father is a clinical psychologist. And the the, the word empathy uh, made it into our homes uh, prior to Brene Brown making it so Mm. popular. Right. And uh, the way I've always seen empathy is that it's essentially a deep understanding of someone else's experience. It's the ability and the desire to see the world as the other sees it while retaining my own ability to not become lost in it. Really. And so it, it really what it means is that I am showing up for you. I am there. There is, uh, I'm not running away. I'm not running when I'm listening to you. I'm not running to say something about myself, right? Mm-hmm. That's, like a, that's like a real challenge when we're engaging in a relationship that when, you know, someone's telling you something going on in their lives, we start thinking about myself and we start responding, you know, in a way that sees the, what the person is saying in relationship to me. Right. That's not empathy. And that that's the that's the real challenger. But to quote Brene Brown, she says empathy is communicating that incredibly healing message of you're not alone. Okay, and I think that this is a deeply biblical idea for a few reasons Two, number one. Tehillim 9115, one of my favorite lines ever. Very simple. Imo Anochi Batsara. I'm with you in your troubles. That's what God says. Right. I'm with you in your troubles. That is empathy. And then my favorite, if I were to ask you, Kylie, why was Moses selected to be the leader of the Jewish people and help the Jewish people exit from Egypt and enter the land of Israel? Why was he selected, right? Why Moses? With many other biblical characters, we know the answer. With Moses, I think that the answer is even clearer. It says, Vayar, and he saw. He saw people's troubles. 
And so there's an obvious question. What does that mean he saw? Well, I like that we're quoting Rashi a lot. Rashi says something so simple and so magnificent. Listen to this. He says, the difference between Moses and everyone else is that he gave of his eyes and his heart to be in distress with them, right? That's empathy. I feel what you're feeling. I see what you're going through and I feel it too. I feel it too, right? Empathy yeah. to me is so important in human relationships. And I think the Torah makes that crystal clear, right? How do yeah. you see empathy? How do you yeah. view empathy in your own life? Oh, so many thoughts on all of that. The empathy that you defined in the beginning, I think, is a, is a beautiful idea, but I think it's an ideal that human beings, most human beings will never reach. Why I think that because you quoted to Hillam after that, and it was God who had empathy, and I think it's only God who's capable of having empathy to that degree. I think but humans it, will strive for that. But, isn't but, it, isn't yeah. it our goal to do imitatio day to imitate God? 100%. 100%. Yes. But I think only God is capable of seeing human beings in themselves. Like seeing a human, seeing a person and treating them in their individuality. And I don't, I don't think humans are fully capable. We, can, well, we will work our entire lives to get there, but it's work. I don't think we'll ever. I think God is the only being that can do that perfectly. I do not think it's possible for us to empathize. And I, and I think it's actually problematic to, to define it and encourage people to do it because really? it's, yeah, because it's so hard to do. See this person and treat them as though they're their own person and don't cast any of your insecurities onto them. Don't cast any of your ideas. How can I not? I'm only in my head. <laughs> How can I not do that? And I'm going to work on it. I'm going to get there. But I think the Moses point is really interesting. He's, he's a fascinating person. He, he's not technically biracial, but in his own kind of way, I think he's one of the first. I, he's I, like, my gosh, he's the me. guy, he's the Jew who was never raised among Jews, who was raised only in Egypt and, and had an inherent connection. It's the exact way that I feel. I have a connection. I'm studying Booker T. Washington and Moses Mendelssohn. I have a connection to both. I feel it. I was not raised in the black community, but I feel that connection. Moses felt that connection to a Jew. When he saw a Jew being beaten, he leaped up to rescue that person. He didn't know why. He had no idea he was a Jew at that point. He felt something. And that knowledge of the two worlds is critical. Only he could have that. I think to be able to see in the way that you described is a recipe for depression and a deep sense of insignificance. Wow. I really do. Well, I so think tell, I, me, tell me why. Tell me. I, I think that's, that's the I, I think that's the only way to be able to cultivate that kind of empathy because you've experienced and it kind of ennobles, if, if that's possible, deep sadness. And I don't think it's everybody's calling. I think that there are particular people who are called to be depressed because what it does is it puts you in the in the absolute dumps where you face you come to face the world as it actually is and you come to see yourself as such a worthless human being that you eventually work your way up to seeing your worth and that enables you to see worth in other people william james is another example of that the greatest some of the greatest artists are able to do that it's not something that's for everybody it's not something that is given to everybody it's it's like the gift of of depression, if such a thing can be said. But I think that that Moshe, Moses, felt worthless as a person. He, like, when God chooses him, he tells him multiple times, no, <laughs> this is not me. You have the wrong guy. I can't do this. Look at look at this, the way that I talk. I, what, what are people going to think? And then God is like, look, your brother's coming. He's going to welcome you. Aaron's going to help you. 
But Moses had such a low sense of self. Why? He was raised in a palace. He was raised as a, as a, he was groomed to be a pharaoh in essence. But he had a sense of worthlessness. I believe that's my interpretation of it. Um, I mean, I don't just believe that. It is said Moses was the most humble man. And what does it mean to be humble? Is that he, he, he didn't even think he was fit for the role. But I think it's so much deeper. What does that mean on a human level? He felt worthless. <laughs> and when you feel that way, you're able to see more in people because you faced yourself. Yeah, I, I, so it's so interesting because I, I, when I think of humility, I don't think of humility as worthlessness. I think of humility, I think of C.S. Lewis who says that humility is not thinking less of oneself, it's thinking 100%. of oneself less. Well, let me clarify. I don't think that humility is a sense of worthlessness, but I do think that humility can be born through a sense of worthlessness. That you then, I, I think I said this earlier, that he comes to see his worth. It's the it's the road from feeling worthless to seeing ah. your worth. When you, when because every every human being has inherent dignity, has worth, exists on the world and doesn't exist in the world and doesn't have to justify their value or their existence. They exist for a reason. Some people doubt that and have no clue why they exist and feel totally worthless. And the process of coming from worthless to worth is the process that I think Moshe undergoes. Um, and and he has to fight. And some people feel a deeper sense of worthlessness and really have to fight to see their worth and to realize that they have inherent value in the world. Well, I, I want to go back to what you said earlier about empathy being, you know, or my definition of empathy being something that uh, is so difficult as to be unattainable. And I'm wondering if you have, if that's true for humanity, that's one thing, but do you have anyone in your life that you're able to extend full empathy to? And do you think, and do you have anyone in your life who does that for you? And what is that experience if you do have that? I'm working on it. I'm definitely a work in progress. I think my mom is very good at it. Seeing people, treating all people as having worth and a story to tell we always get in our own way. So I can think of myself, I, I can do it. I definitely cast my ideas onto other people and think about other people through my own experiences and my own beliefs. And I'm working on moving through that and past that to try and let other people just be other people. But I think it'll always be something that I strive towards and get better at but don't necessarily achieve in the godlike sense. Yeah, well, empathy, maybe, it, you know, I described it an extreme version of empathy, but empathy is also, you know, looking at someone in the eye and when they're, when they're in the same room as you and being present, right? Like yeah. that's, that's also empathy and being there for, I'll give you an example from the Israeli-Palestinian conflict with empathy uh, that I th think is fascinating. Muhammad Adjani Daoudi, Professor Muhammad Adjani Daoudi, was one of the leaders at, uh, I forget which university in Israel, I'm blanking on the name of the university, uh, mm -hmm. but he really fundamentally viewed Israel as awful. Uh, and then one day, his, um, his father his, or his mother was particularly sick, and he saw the acts of kindness and grace, this is a quote from him, by the Israeli medical personnel who treated his parents 
kindly and it utterly changed him yeah. to the point that what he did, this is the famous part of Professor uh, Johnny Doherty, is he took a number of his students, his Palestinian students, to Auschwitz. Mm. And he said, you know, the empathy that I saw, the very basic thing, that it was actually remarkably unremarkable the way that the Israeli hospitals, um, doctors and nurses were taking care of his parents. He was like, this is, they, they were just treating my parents as though they were one of their own. And like, oh my gosh, it was a, it was a oh my gosh moment. And then he said, as a result of that empathy, he wanted his Palestinian students to have empathy for the Jewish experience, which is part of the Jewish story is Auschwitz, right? Mm -hmm. And just to see that power of empathy, I, 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 and I don't know if I'm wrong here, but, and I'm happy to be wrong here, because if, if I learned something new, you just taught me something incredibly new about Moses being like in multiple different spaces. And like, I never thought of him that way. But, you know, I'm wondering if empathy, genuinely feeling empathy, showing empathy, and being shown empathy can change really the fabric of how we all live our lives. And then even yeah. more than that, I'm wondering if empathy is not just, uh, it, is empathy the highest of values? Or when there are other values, empathy clashes with other values, maybe justice, empathy mm. needs to yield. How do you view it? This just reminds me that I don't like the English language that much because I think <laughs> I think it's really limited. I don't like the word empathy. And I think it's like love. We have one word for love. Farsi, Persian language, has 80 words for love. Other languages have so many words for things because it gets at certain nuances. Yiddish is a really good example of this for the Jews. Like, People have languages that convey so many different, there's love of father, there's love of mother, there's romantic love, there's friendship love, there's um, love when you see a sunset. Like there's so many different types of it. And in some way, I think it's the same with empathy that I'd almost rather say curiosity okay. because when I think of, I, I'm, a, I'm a deeply curious person and I'm an open person and I'm friends with a lot of people. So I know people who are living on the street in my neighborhood and like we'll talk to them for an hour and I know everybody who works at the coffee shops in my vicinity and I'm very open I wouldn't call it empathetic though and I think it's I think what it is is that it's a curiosity about people and it's seeing like what what you're telling me about this professor is it sounds like he became open to hearing about and learning about another people's experience and I think of that as being different from empathy in some ways. Okay. It's it's an openness to learning about people. It's an openness to discovering people. That's the only way. I can never, I think this is my problem with empathy, I can never get out of my mind. And I can never see people outside of my perception of them. But I can learn about them. So then It's a very you, subtle difference. From a Jewish perspective, how do you deal with the phrase meaning don't judge your friend until you're in his or her place. Again, it's a commandment. It's something to strive for. It's, a, okay. <laughs> it's something that we're supposed to do. It, okay, it's a prescription. We might not. It's, yeah. It's a, it's a prescription. It's saying this is an instruction. But I think the goal of, an, of a prescription or, or an instruction is to ultimately do everything, do, do everything you can to get there, right? Yes, so, 100%. I think what you're saying is not antithetical. Like the fact that there is a prescription 
does mean that you're supposed to strive towards it and you're supposed to achieve it when you can. And if you have a moment where you see somebody and you meet them and you're, I don't know, I, the only way I can think to do this is if you're like on shrooms or something. Like, I don't know how you do this as a, as a sober human. <laughs> but so if there's a moment, I've never done shrooms, truth be told, but I hear that it shuts off your ego. We have, e like we have, we're, we're human beings. We have egos. We see the world through ourselves, through our own minds. But it's something to always strive for. And it means that you're going to get as close as you can to that. And some days you'll do better than others. And that's the point of Jewish law, as I see it. Right. So Shai Held, really thoughtful rabbi, presents us with, I think, a bit of a, a dilemma. And I want to hear how you would solve this dilemma. He claims that one of the most fundamental claims Judaism makes about the world is that every human being on the face of the earth, black and white, male and female, is created in the image of God and is therefore infinitely valuable. So that's what he claims that Judaism does for the world, right? All of us are infinitely valuable. Doesn't matter what our sex is. Doesn't matter what our skin color is. Doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's a wonderful thing about Judaism, ostensibly. And then in a recent survey in August of this past year, 2021, a survey of Jews of color found that 80% of respondents said they had experienced discrimination in Jewish settings. What's going on there? If Judaism is so good at articulating that every human being is infinitely valuable, what's the distance between the teachings of Judaism and Jewish people feeling like they are discriminated in a Jewish setting? From your experience, what's your take on that? You're biracial, right? You are mm -hmm. black, you are white. I can't speak to this nearly as well, I think, as you can, because like we were just talking about with regard to empathy. Yeah. How do you see it? I think that it's not possible or smart to classify the opinion and the, the work of the Jewish community as a whole because we're so big and we look so many different ways. And my community in Kansas City was very different. My experience in that community was very different from my experience uh, in the Jewish community in New York. Right. New York Jews know New York Jews. A lot of them have come from Holocaust survivors. They're people who came from Europe who can trace back their roots to a certain place and who have stayed in a largely homogenous community for a long time. Whereas Kansas City, I don't know, it looked a little different. Maybe it was because it was the Midwest. It, 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 people have been there for generations, but it's more integrated. It's less of a bubble. New York, it's more in a bubble. So I can't, I can't exactly speak to the Jewish community as a whole. Well, do you, do you, Kylie, have you experienced discrimination in a, in a Jewish setting? Yeah, I've experienced people saying stupid things. Okay. <laughs> it's hard to classify what it is as like, what is discrimination? Like, I want to say I have faced pain feeling like an outsider in the Jewish community. I have faced, I've experienced pain wanting to feel like I fit in and putting myself on the outside more than putting myself on the inside. It fundamentally comes from me. I go to a kosher restaurant and I feel like an outsider. Nobody's doing anything to me. That's the truth. Like I have been to places and nobody's doing anything. And then I ask myself, what do you expect? Like, do you expect to walk into Izzy's Barbecue in Crown Heights or the Upper West Side and somebody to roll out a red carpet and say, Kylie, 
We know that you speak Hebrew and we know that you're getting your PhD in Jewish philosophy. We see you. We see that you're just as Jewish as us. Please come and order a barbecue sandwich. No, I don't ever want to minimize pain and painful experiences and feeling like the thing that makes you different is something that makes you lesser than. And I, and I think we all I, I think we all experience that in certain places where we are. If you know I'm going to Bnei Brock and like are dressed wearing your your hat backwards and your T-shirt and whatever, like you're going to feel like an outsider, which is ridiculous because you're just as Jewish as the other people there. But you're going to feel like you're going to walk into a store and they're going to look at you funny. And everybody experiences that. And I don't want to minimize it by saying, well, you experience it too. And I like, but I think there is something shared about it, which could be the empathy. If we're going to use the word empathy, the closest thing you can say is, I've experienced this thing that's kind of like that time you experienced that thing. I kind of relate to it. Yeah, that's that's the, the closest you can possibly get is opening your mind to thinking about that and not saying, well, you're biracial. Kylie, I think it's a great framing. I think it's a really helpful framing. And it's different from you're biracial. You must feel like an outsider. Tell me your experience. Like, why don't I hear? When, when do you feel like an outsider? Like, can you relate to me on this? I'm sure you felt this way at other times. It's not just that I'm black. Right. So. I've, I'm the only one who's ever felt this way. Like there's nothing, I've never felt lonelier than in the last couple of years when my race has been so important to people. When my experience as a Jew of color, quote unquote, in the world has been the most important thing. I've never felt more separated from the Jewish community oh, wow. <laughs> than before because all of the attention is on this thing that I've experienced. Hasn't anybody else ever experienced not feeling like they fit in? I feel like they have. I feel like that's high school for most people. (laughs) I think people have felt that way. But because my skin color looks different, then that becomes the focus of it. And so I've have I experienced discrimination? Maybe maybe there was somebody who had a really limited perspective that they chose to look at me and think a certain thing. I've certainly had people who feel like they are privy to knowledge about my identity, I feel that way. Like if I see somebody who looks like me, I am super curious what they are. Yeah. <laughs> like what you're at shul with me and we look similar and I'm and I'm trying to move past that because I'm I'm working on seeing myself as more of an insider than an outsider. I've kind of put myself on the outside needlessly so because if there's going to be change in the community, it's not going to come from me saying, hey, treat me differently. It's going to come from me saying, hey, I fit in here. Whether you realize it or not, if you don't think that I do, that's a that's your problem. Frederick Douglass was once on a train and he was put with the suitcases. Somebody came up to him and said, Mr. Douglass, how can you sit by so contently while somebody just put you back here? Don't they, they know who don't they know who you are? And he said, I know my worth. I know where I should be. If somebody chooses not to see me as that, they're the ones who are miserable. They're the unlucky ones. Kylie, this is really awesome, really interesting. One of the things that you said uh, just now that has me thinking is that in some ways at the time that people were most interested in you is when you became most lonely uh, Mm. in the last couple of years. And people being intrigued about your experience of in some ways othering you in the sense that well you must you're so different you're like an alien you're like oh right. what, what's the, what's it like to be you and you're like whoa 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 I actually didn't know about myself that this is a weird existence until you made 
it the case that my existence is so odd. It's not unique to me. <laughs> it's not unique to the extra melanin in my skin. It's just it's like it's not a byproduct of skin tone. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, Kylie, anything else you want to leave us with? Thank you. No, thank you. That's it. I really enjoyed this conversation. It's exciting. We're incredibly grateful that you were able to join us. And I think having a human being like you who is evolving their thoughts and allowing yourself to continuously think about ideas and continuously grow and to reflect and to refine, I think it's something that all of us should be doing more and more in 2021. So uh, thank you for giving us permission to do that. Thank you. Thanks, You're Kylie. welcome, I should say. <laughs> this conversation was not the easiest in a good way i'll be honest kylie resisted some of the premises of our conversation starters and was unsure about some of her takes on these vexing modern challenges and i think kylie gave voice to what many of us are thinking about with regard to questions of empathy and racism well we're all still trying to figure it out and by the way I have to add something unrelated to today's topic of empathy. And that is something Kylie talked about at the end of our conversation. She mentioned how the past year, year and a half, has brought about her own evolution of thought. I love that. I marveled even at the time at the uniqueness and the humility in that sentence. How many of us admit to ourselves and admit out loud to the world that we're still evolving, that we're still thinking about ideas and adjusting and not a thousand percent sure of ourselves and our thoughts. Imagine if people asked our thoughts about things and we simply said, you know what? I'm still evolving. I'm not sure. Still figuring it out. So here's my takeaway from this episode. People want to be free to be who they are, not to feel like they're put in a box based on what others are perceiving. As Kylie put it so well, no one wants to feel like an outsider. So that's my challenge to myself. Based on this conversation, I want to approach people, friends, strangers, family, anyone, and really listen to who they are, not who I see them as. And maybe then I can really see them for their reality. That feels pretty empathic to me. The Power Of is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked related and subscribe to our other podcasts. Follow Unpacked at all the social media places. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked. And most of all, write to us. Let's connect person to person with respect and empathy at podcasts at jewishunpacked.com. This episode was produced by Rifki Stern and audio from Rob Perra. I'm your host, Noam Weissman. Thanks for listening.